approach it with yourself front and center. A leader has to lead. That doesn't mean you have to know all the answers, but you can't hide. And people respect you for not hiding and also being truthful in what you know and what you don't know. Call them change makers. Call them rule breakers. We call them redefiners. Join us in conversation with daring leaders who are creating extraordinary impact and driving change from around the globe. Each episode gives you a fresh perspective on your leadership and career journey. I'm Hoda Tahoon, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds. I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive officer and a leadership advisor. And this is Redefiners. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. We have another fascinating and timely episode lined up for you today as we get to talk with someone who is redefining the energy industry. Before we do that, we want to take a moment to answer a listener question that came into the Redefiners inbox. The question is, I've sat on several boards and recently been asked to join the board of a new health investment organization. I'm interested, but don't know any of the people involved personally. How do we get assurance this is a legit board and should I take a chance on a new company? So I have a couple of reactions. One is you want to get to know and trust your fellow board members. You should be able to find people in common to calibrate. Because if you're in the foxhole during a crisis, you got to know you can depend on your fellow board members. Number two, do you believe the management team have what it takes to make it in a startup different than an established company, both from an operating and risk-taking standpoint, but also from an ethics and value standpoint, because you will be the governor of this new company. So I would check out the management team, obviously the underlying business in a startup, do you believe in it? But also, do you believe in your fellow board members? For others who have questions, don't hesitate to send us an email at redefiners at russellreynolds.com and we'll answer the question at the beginning of each session. So let's get back to introducing today's guest. This person is a highly respected leader of a global company operating in more than 120 countries with 55,000 employees. You know, I'm excited, Hoda, because everyone talks about transformation. It's this hot word these days. But when I actually talk about someone who's leading a company through transformation, much less in the energy industry, it's incredibly appropriate and, and, and pretty timely. And you know, at the center of it all, Clark, is people. And that's a big number, 55,000 people. How do you transform that kind of workforce? Yeah, and they're in the bullseye of all these discussions about climate and then AI and using technology. And can we meet the goals that we set? Can we help our customers meet the goals? I'm, I'm curious to meet the guy because the pressure he's under every day to succeed, much less make the world happy, is unbelievable. Oh, and add to it all of the different regulations for each country and culture and language and legality. I mean, this person has their hands full. That's for sure, Clark. They do. Well, he's unique. His name is Lorenzo Simonelli, chairman and CEO of Baker Hughes, the energy technology company that provides solutions for both energy and industrial customers. Prior to that, Lorenzo had a number of leadership roles with GE, including president and CEO of GE Oil and Gas, president and CEO of GE Transportation and was CFO Americas for GE Consumer Industrial. An incredible track record of performance. So we're excited. Lorenzo, welcome to Redefiners. Great to be with you both, Hoda Clark. I look forward to the uh, discussion ahead. So Lorenzo, there are so many things to talk about today as energy and sustainability are certainly critical topics in the world. 
But before we dive into that, let's talk about your background a bit. You started off in finance, but ended up somehow in the transportation and energy industries. How did your career progress and what made you decide to make that transition into transportation and energy? Actually, I started out uh, wanting to go into banking. And uh, my father was a banker and essentially seeing uh, his career, I thought uh, the best place to start would be banking. I went and actually joined Mitsubishi Bank. And soon after that, I realized that I wanted more of an industrial and uh, multinational company. And I went to General Electric in a finance training program, FMP, and then continued on that route through the G Audit staff, which was, again, a development uh, of management talent associated with finance. and. I pretty much early on decided I wanted to get more into the operational arena, but I used my finance track record and also my education in finance to get me there. And so from uh, being a CFO, then I transitioned into product management, uh, transitioned into really running operations, and then eventually getting the opportunity to be CEO of a number of businesses. Lorenzo, you're originally from Tuscany, where your family has a vineyard that produces wine and olive oil, which is one of my favorite things in the world. How did you end up in the career that you've had from such an interesting origin? Well, you have to come and visit us in Tuscany because the uh, winery and olive grove is still there. Oh, I'm there. (laughs) It's very much part of the family tradition. And we learned early on, though, and my father was the um, first generation to really say, you know, agriculture is fantastic, but it's a hobby. So we've kept it in the family as a tradition and still making the wine and olive oil. And really, as you look at agriculture, especially the small amount that we have. It's more of a family tradition and hobby, but um, I decided to stay the course as my father had taught me and uh, really move into business where, you know, from a uh, aspect of quality of life and also supporting the hobby, it's helpful. I love that. Well, it sounds like a delicious hobby. Exactly. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> Let's stick, stick with the hobbies when it comes to wine and olive oil, that's for sure. Let's move forward a little bit. When you became president and CEO of GE Transportation, Lorenzo, you were incredibly young, one of the youngest division presidents ever at GE. How did you handle that, particularly in such a, at that moment, classically hierarchical company? What was it like to be a really young division president? You know, Clark, it's something that I often ask myself, how am I going to be viewed by the people around me? And how do I make sure that age is not a factor? And I've got to compliment GE and also the people that I worked with, because at the end of the day, It's performance that counts and also the way in which you lead versus age. And so I never made it about my age. I made it about the interpersonal skills, made it about the aspect of leading and learning from everybody around me. And, you know, I've had the fortune of uh, working for people that later on in my career, I actually managed and I was able to build bonds and have the relationship that allowed that to be natural. So fortunate maybe that it really didn't come up. And it was a basis of let's focus on what's he doing, focus on the performance he has, the leadership qualities, and being humble enough also to respect the tenure of people that have been there longer, uh, but create a bond where we could actually have a dialogue and uh, different opinions and, uh, you know, have constructive conversations. So if you pull that forward, we live in a world now of listening skills, empathy, creating followership. But yet in that moment, you are in one of the most hierarchical cultures. And you talk about 
leading and learning and listening, which I can't imagine necessarily might have been the sense of it when you were a GE in that moment. How do you think about the changing nature of leadership? Because your method really is where the world has gone to today. How, how do you tie that together? Leadership is a constant evolution. And I think one of the biggest assets a leader has to have is ability to adapt and be agile, be a clear communicator, be concise, but also be able to differentiate the different leadership styles that are necessary for the audience and also the employee base and the different external stakeholders. So mm-hmm. the way I've always viewed it is leadership is complicated mm-hmm. because there are so many things happening. There's so many different messages. There's so much external information and misinformation that's out there. And so you've got to filter through a lot of that and be very concise, clear, direct, and also be very transparent and honest all of the time. And that's the way I've always led. And I think you've got to be agile in the capability of doing that and not be too hierarchical and not be too stuffy and not be too formal, but at the same time, have respect and uh, humility. Lorenzo, as you talk about the amount of uncertainty and misinformation that's out there, you became CEO at GE Transportation in 2008. The financial crisis had just hit. And then soon after, you took on the CEO role at GE Oil & Gas, and then oil prices plummeted. How have you led through crisis, through uncertainty, and how do you tap into your teams during those times? Yeah, some people could say that I haven't picked my timing very well for the roles I was in. <laughs> actually, um, it's actually helped me become a better leader. And I look back to the days of G Transportation in 2008. And as the financial crisis hit, there was two options. I could, number one, go underneath my desk and hide, <laughs> or I could confront the situation at hand and actually talk to the employee base, talk to the community and actually describe what was happening. And I remember reflecting with my mentors at the time and saying, how do you approach this? And their advice was very clear. Approach it with yourself front and center. A leader has to lead. That doesn't mean you have to know all the answers, but you can't hide. And people respect you for not hiding and also being truthful in what you know and what you don't know. So we made some very difficult decisions. Uh, we ultimately had to shed 50% of the workforce because the volume of wow. locomotive orders actually decreased significantly. That was in a city of Erie, Pennsylvania, which we were the largest employer. And the nice thing was that ultimately we ended up rehiring all of those individuals and actually increasing the employee base as the company came back from the financial crisis and actually grew the order book internationally. And it was a dialogue with the community. It was an aspect of being out there listening and then also being astute enough to make decisions and clearly communicate why those decisions were necessary. I've always found that people prefer the truth and it's better not to hide, but to face the challenges and move on And that was also a practice that I took into G Oil and Gas. Again, another infamous great piece of timing. I remember being uh, on an interview and somebody said, well, what's going to happen to the price of oil? Oh, it's going to stay above $100. Next thing I know is it's down to 40. 
I, <laughs> I very quickly learned never to answer the question again on what's the price of oil going to be. But there it was uh, facing the challenge head on, deciding to take the actions to solidify the strength of the balance sheet, solidify the strength of the company. Because the important thing is making sure that you are able to navigate the volatility and uh, each industry has its own type of volatility. So those are lessons learned that I've taken into every role that I have. I think those are terrific lessons that you've highlighted. How do you think about sort of the day-to-day uncertainty from technology advances, geopolitics, even natural disasters? Those are things that we face every single day. Have you prepared some sort of um, mindset or playbook to manage and help you think through the potential issues on a day-to-day basis? Definitely. You never know what's going to happen around the corner. So my philosophy is really a dual approach. The first is focus on what you can control. And that means service levels. It means operational efficiencies. It means the running of the day-to-day business and making sure you care about your employees and you're an employer of choice. And all of those factors are in your control. Then there's elements that are outside of your control. And these are the black swan events or the geopolitics. And the way in which I've approached them is actually test out different scenarios, role play the different scenarios. I find role playing to be a great tool to be able to do red team, blue team on a situation. And if the event ever happens or a like event happens, you can start to implement that role playing and you can start to put the actions into place. So during the course of the year, I will actually do a number of different scenarios with the team and we'll role play those scenarios. And hopefully none of them come to be, but if they do, we're prepared for them. And, you know, as you talk about those scenarios and leadership What are you looking for to see if you've got a really strong leader emerging? What I look for is the agility and the practical nature of the way in which they approach a problem with a solution. And for me, it's uh, an aspect of continuous learning. I know I've learned a lot through the situations that I faced, which have been volatility, and I've taken best practices from those. When um, you're entering into a country How do you approach it when you have to exit a country, when you're looking at new technologies that are potential bets? How do you actually invest in them and do that in a pragmatic way so as not to burn all of your cash flow? And I look to actually give problems to my leaders and see how they solve them and challenge them on the approaches that they have. There is no right or wrong. As a leader, Outside of the ethics and integrity and governance that's paramount, you're going to get some things right, you're going to get some things wrong. And it's an aspect of learning from those and continuously applying them so that you're improving every day. Given your learning and given, in all seriousness, the several crises you've worked through, we always ask our guests, is there a defining or redefining moment in your career that was pivotal to who you've become or what you're running today? Yeah, I'd say in 2008, with the financial crisis, it was my first global leadership role, heading up one of the GE business units and having to confront the situation of a dramatic reduction in volume and the impact it had on the community. I was very much timid at the time 
I was unsure what to do. And it was great to have mentors that actually provided me with the guidance and the advice. And once you've been through that, it really starts to prepare you. And it's easy to be scared as a leader, especially when you're confronting something for the first time. And so it's very important that you have that network around you that you can go and consult with, you know, who your mentors, champions are, your advocates, and utilize that. And I've benefited through my career of being part of uh, business council, being part of different groups where a lot of CEOs go through the same challenges. You're not alone out there. And it's how to use that network to help you. Lorenzo, maybe switching gears a little bit, every industry is facing disruption from competitors, from new entrants, accelerating technology, and a whole host of other factors. How do you prepare and guide your business through this continued disruption? I don't know how many of us anticipated the pandemic was going to happen, but (laughs) overnight, again, it completely changed the way in which we work. And you had to suddenly get comfortable with Zoom calls, teams. You had to get comfortable mm-hmm. with um, negotiating things without being in person. And, you know, it's, again, the ability to be agile. And that's extremely important mm-hmm. in facing challenges and preparing for challenges is agility, speed, and adaptability. And what I always look for is in myself and also the team members is that willingness to extend into the unknown and be appropriately risk on as you go and solve things. And you've got to be able to to, to balance out that uh, risk aversion versus the risk on, the speed versus the slow. And in a time of change and volatility, my preference is to go at a faster rate and actually use the agility and just confront the ambiguity. You have the reputation as a really good negotiator, and you've known for the number of deals you've done throughout your career. A smile and Italian charm, but you get the pennies off the table. (laughs) Well done. Did your approach to negotiating change in the pandemic with remote negotiations versus reading someone in the room? How How did negotiations alter in the last couple of years? You know, it varied because of the relationships you ever had existing prior to the pandemic or if they were new relationships built during the pandemic. Mm. And so with individuals that you had a relationship with prior to the pandemic, you could very much relate over a Teams. There was already a chemistry that was built from the social interaction that you had before. So Where I found it interesting was when you were forming new relationships over the course of the pandemic and having to do negotiations with people you'd never met. So what what are the cues? What are the facial expressions? What are the emotions? And you have to be very good at building a chemistry. Mm. And that's the aspect of networking. It's the aspect of asking the right questions, finding out about the individuals, You know, what I did as a way of preparing would be a lot more work on the individual and the biography of the individual beforehand. And previously, if you were meeting in person, you'd have that social interaction and you'd have that initial chit chat at the beginning. And when you're going into a more formalized team setting or Zoom, you've got to do more preparation in advance. So that's how I approached it. I'm glad that we're back to in-person meetings. I think you need a blend. 
And it's, it's much more effective to do to do both. Lorenzo, will Clark and I get to see you at the vineyard then in person? <laughs> you know, I'll take every opportunity to go there. So, yes. Continuing the theme of disruption, you all have digitized enormously successfully at Baker Hughes, but it never lets up. It just goes and goes and goes. And now AI says, what's good for us? What's not good for us? What do we use it? Well, don't we? How do you look at machine learning and now AI? It's early days. And clearly, there's a lot of focus and the productivity that can be achieved by the application of digital tools, AI. And we've started applying it across our business. And it has the benefit of driving efficiencies, has the benefit of being safer because you can do work from remote locations. You don't need people at the site. And so I look at the benefits. At the same time, clearly, you've got to know what the drawbacks are and the way in which you protect yourself from some of the cybersecurity risks, et cetera. But uh, we're still very much in the early stages of understanding the full productivity and efficiency and benefits that can be achieved by generative AI. And I think, uh, you know, over the course of the next few years, we're going to be learning a lot more, but we see it as something that we can deploy out in the field and inside our own processes uh, to drive efficiencies and also drive a, a better workplace. We've talked a lot about technology's role in energy transition. How do you win the hearts and minds in the organization and your customers to think about behavior change? We talk so much about transformation at Baker Hughes, but we haven't talked about the people side of transformation. What's your approach? It all starts and ends with people. And, uh, you know, there's a saying that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. We can have the best technology. We can have the best game plan. But if you don't have the right change management and the right culture and behaviors, it's not going to be adopted. And so you really have to put a lot of emphasis on how is it good for the people that are going to have to be implementing, utilizing the technology, and how is it a win-win so that it isn't a scary proposition? People will view AI, digital, or some of the technology as meaning it's taking things away and actually demanding. They're not looking at it from the aspect of it can be enriching and it can actually provide opportunities for doing more with less and actually being safer and creating the opportunity to learn and advance. And I think change management, behaviors, culture is extremely important. And anybody who's been through the change acceleration uh, programs or has seen transformation I think uh, it starts with understanding how do you get the hearts and minds with you to actually apply the technology. Technology doesn't exist without the people to make it happen. So I agree. Lorenzo, for our listeners who perhaps don't know, Baker Hughes serves energy and industrial companies. And as we think about the world continuing to tackle climate change, how do you think technology can accelerate that transition to a more sustainable energy solution? And how do you go about decarbonizing the energy system overall? So we have a couple of hours for the response because uh, it is definitely <laughs> not, not, not an easy yeah. one to fix. It's going to require a lot of different technologies. It's going to require the application of many more solutions. And, you know, at Baker Hughes, we have three truths that we hold near and there. The first is that We've got to continue to deploy existing technologies that we have today, as well as invest in new technologies. And when I say existing technologies, 
we already know how to stop flaring. We already have uh, ways in which to drive efficiencies in the oil and gas sector of up to 10%, which reduces CO2 by 500,000 tons. And so deploying these technologies is important, as well as then continuing to advance the new areas. Also on the fuels, we want as many fuels as possible, but we have to be realistic. Hydrocarbons is still going to be part of the energy mix, and we've got to make those hydrocarbons cleaner. But we're going to need more solar, more wind. We're going to need more of everything mm. because it's not an either or, it's an and. And energy consumption is increasing around the world. And thirdly, is really that we're not going to get this done unless we have an ecosystem of partnership and collaboration. And working together, everybody needs to decarbonize. Everybody needs to address the greenhouse gases. You have hard to abate industries such as mining, metals. Uh, you have different arenas where all of us have made pledges. You've got countries that have made pledges towards net zero, and we've got to deploy technology at scale to get that done. So in essence, you know, at Baker Hughes, our quest is really to be the enabler of that lower carbon economy being created. And, uh, you know, we're one of the participants with many that are along the same journey. Are there any other factors that you think are going to be really important for us to continue to be in that turning point of momentum and bringing governments and the private sector along to accelerate this shift? Yes, we're going to need more collaboration across all the different stakeholders and more of a pragmatic discussion. Mm. As you look at the Inflation Reduction Act that was introduced here in um, the US, as well as the Build Back Better, all of these infrastructure bills, those are good steps forward with regards to incentivizing the change that has to happen from an energy landscape perspective. Likewise, the agreements that take place in Europe on carbon pricing, more of a stick model. But again, you're going to require all of those policies and regulations and the ecosystem to come together in a pragmatic way to facilitate the change. Also, once you've got those in place, you need the right permitting structures. You need the right uh, governance around permitting, which it's not a trivial solution. You need all of these things to come together mm. into one. And so that's why it's complicated. That's why it takes time. And I think there's a lot of misinformation sometimes out there relative to how can we go towards a lower carbon economy and how do we implement the right technologies necessary? You all have set some pretty aggressive goals at Baker Hughes while you're also enabling your customers to reach their goals towards net zero 2050. Many other companies have woken up a year or two later and the CEO has made a goal and, and the management team is like, hey, making these on a timely basis is going to be hard. Glad you made the pledge. We got to put it in practice. You're in 120 countries. So the variables of regulation or implementation are dramatic. How do you slice and dice to make progress across these different cultures and regulations? Yeah, well, Clark, I'm glad that we came out with our pledge and net zero commitment in uh, 2019. And we said scope one and two, 50% uh, reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050. And when we came out with that, we actually asked every business segment, all the product lines, all of our manufacturing sites, 
to have a roadmap towards achieving it and what would it take? And that's what we've been implementing. And I couldn't be more pleased that our most recent sustainability report, we were able to show a 28% reduction in emissions since our baseline year of 2019. And, you know, it's blocking and tackling. It's uh, being able to move from using diesel to using gas to then using uh, renewable energy in our manufacturing locations, uh, having solar panels. It's uh, being able to use battery-operated forklifts. It's a number of different things. So I, I definitely would recommend have a roadmap in place before you make the pledge because <laughs> we are going to be held accountable for the statements that we made. So whether it's forklifts or solar, how much of your learnings are you going to customers and saying, hey, this didn't work for us, this did work for us? What's the shared knowledge ecosystem, as you referred to ecosystems before? Oh, it's very good. And look, I'm uh, part of the World Economic Forum. There is a oil and gas governors. There's uh, different industry groups where we share a lot of information. We are actively involved in giving ideas on how our partners and customers can reduce their emissions. They're actively telling us how we can. So if you think about it, at the end of the day, when you look at emissions and you look at scope one, two, three, you need consumers, manufacturers, OEMs, all of them actually aligned in being able to achieve those reductions. So I think, Lorenzo, the ultimate goal to truly combat climate change is global net zero. And that's obviously a massive undertaking. And you've been talking about the commitment from organizations private sector, public sector, governments, et cetera, all to be a part of the solution. And technology obviously is going to be a part of it, but technology alone won't solve it. What do you think needs to happen be as a priority in accelerating the decarbonization and ultimately getting us to a global net zero? Again, you're posing the um, difficult questions. And the solution <laughs> is going to be a multitude of aspects coming together. I don't think technology is going to be the stumbling block. I think when you look at the different modes of energy creation, we have actually a lot of technology that's being introduced and a lot of good progress being made. There is the grid sustainability of actually transferring the energy that needs to be worked on. And to enable this to happen, you really do need policymakers, regulatory bodies, and the different stakeholders to align and there to be the right incentives as well as the right rules in place to make sure that we have a just transition as well that balances between developed and developing nations. It's going to impact everybody. And so we need yeah. that convergence of how we tackle it together and a lot more, I think, pragmatic discussions on what's it take. And hopefully that will happen at COP28 in uh, UAE this year. So there you go. That's that's where we have the high hopes. And, and Baker Hughes reducing by 28% already since 2019. Again, it's nice to see people lead with actions and, and not just hang on words. So well, well done to Baker Hughes. Thank you. So here we go with the toughest part of the whole podcast, <laughs> Lorenzo. It's the rapid fire questions where you don't get to think and prepare at all. You have to answer right away. We're going to ask you a series of questions and ask you to answer. Are you ready? All right. I'm ready. All right. Here we go. First and foremost, what is your morning routine? Wake up, go to the gym. Okay. I'm already jealous. <laughs> <laughs> what movie has had the biggest impact on your life? 
uh, Chariots of Fire, The Winning Determination. I like um, real-life stories and um, stories of people that were the underdog and actually achieved success. Love that. That is so funny. I was wondering if Chariots of Fire was there. Same for me. It's very funny you said that. Crazy. Okay. Name a leader, dead or alive, who you've learned the most from in your lifetime. I've been fortunate to uh, be exposed to a lot of great leaders. Um, I'll give you one that uh, today is very much still present. And Satya Nadella is uh, obviously CEO, chairman of Microsoft, has uh, been very kind in providing me a lot of the thoughts of how he transformed Microsoft. And that's been a key aspect of how I've been looking at transforming Baker Hughes. What is your favorite comfort food? I'm a big fan of... uh, Cheese and salami. <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> it goes well with red wine, by the way. So last question. What do you wish you had learned earlier in your life? Not to take everything too seriously. And um, there's going to be ups and downs. And the most important thing is getting yourself up and self-motivation. Self-motivation probably goes back to where you started in terms of deciding that you were going to be in finance and be a banker. This has been a learning experience for us in this podcast, Lorenzo. But I, I start with some of the things just to summarize. The performance counts, as you said. You led and learn from those around you and be humble enough to respect those who may have been there longer. But at the same time, you've tracked a leadership evolution of being adaptive and agile. And if you end up in the process of leading through a crisis, which every leader will, then make sure that you don't hide, be out front and communicate approach the crisis as yourself and lead from the front. And remember that you're not alone, that in fact, it's easy to be scared. It's okay to be scared. But if you've built a network, go to those people, be part of a group so you can turn to others who have been through crises to learn from them. And whether it was oil going to 40 bucks a barrel or a pandemic, you can only do two things, manage the day-to-day as best you can. And in advance of a crisis, Role-play scenarios, think through the black swans, and as a leader, challenge those who go through those processes to see how they lead, and then you'll know who you can depend upon. And when it comes to these crises or times of disruption, I find it interesting you say, that's when you take risk, risk on, as you said it, versus risk aversion. And in volatile times, go faster, because that's when you have the advantage. You look at what Baker Hughes has done, most importantly is, Lay the roadmap first, pledge second, and then collaboration of governments, of private sector, of the local community to understand what may work in West Africa, may not work in Brazil, and certainly not going to work in Texas. So adapt to the local communities to harness what you can to have this blocking and tackling success. And finally, with all that serious discussion, don't take yourself too seriously. And if in doubt, find the red wine that's been uh, created in Tuscany and and you'll find comfort, no question at all. So Lorenzo, a lot of learnings in in a short conversation. We are very appreciative of you being here and sharing so much of that in this leadership journey you have been on. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lorenzo. Thank you both very much. Terrific. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more compelling insights from leaders across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or to get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com, find us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter at RRA on Leadership.